Hi, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. My name's Annie and my pronouns are she or they. And I'm Frankie and my pronouns are he, him. Gendered Intelligence is a charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and help improve the lives of all trans people. Our vision is of a world where people are no longer constrained by narrow perceptions and expectations of gender and where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued. If you're interested in supporting Gendered Intelligence or to find out more about our youth work, volunteer scheme, educational and professional services, please visit genderedintelligence.co.uk or follow us on our Twitter at genderintel. This week we hear about how people make change. Listen to people doing activism in different forms. Helen Belcher fought for the Lib Dem MP position in the last local elections and she shares some of her understandings and experiences with getting laws passed and has advice on talking to your MPs. Nimralf is a community activist, freelance trainer, facilitator and writer. They share with us how their process of resistance has fought against internalising impression and give their perspectives on getting to the table. Charlie Craggs is an award-winning trans activist and author. She's been running her campaign Nail Transphobia for five years, offering free manicures for the chance to sit down and chat with a trans person in a bit to humanise the issue, break down misconceptions and build allies. She talks with us about the process of starting this campaign and the way that her activism affects people. outline of how law is made, uh, so what the different parliamentary processes are, uh, and then talk a little bit about the likely timetable for any proposed new gender recognition bill, uh, and then my experiences in Chippenham during the last election and how that can help you, hopefully, talk to MPs and prospective MPs and so on, uh, and then I'll pass on to Nim, I think it is, and then um, happy to take questions afterwards. So, how law is made. So apologies for those of you who've got your constitutional studies A-level. Law is made by going through the Houses of Parliament. We have two chambers in the Houses of Parliament. One is the House of Commons, so those are the MPs that 70-75% of us vote in every time. Uh, and then there's the House of Lords, which uh, nobody votes for apart from a very small number of hereditary peers, which a very small number of other hereditary peers vote for. But the process is essentially that a bill, which is a proposed law, gets tabled, technical term, in one of the houses. Now, for the gender recognition bill, this is likely to be a government bill, which means that it is likely, most likely, to be going through the House of Commons first. So what then technically happens is the bill is given a first reading, which is typically just nodded through. Then, there is a debate before what's called the second reading, and then there'd be a vote on the second reading. So most bills go through that second reading without any problems at all. What then happens is called committee, uh, no, report stage in the Commons, and that's where a small group of MPs is convened, and they go through the bill bit by bit, and they scrutinise it, ask for evidence, talk amongst themselves, and then decide whether those bits should be amended in some way. So that's the first kind of proper debate 
on any proposed legislation is that sort of intermediate stage. And then the, the revised bill out of the report stage goes back to the House of Commons, and then MPs vote on it in what's called the third and final reading. And if it passes that, you then start again in the House of Lords. So it's then tabled as a government bill in the House of Lords. They nod it through on a first reading. The House of Lords typically nods it through on a second reading as well, although controversial bills get a bit of a vote. So same-sex marriage, when that went through, did actually have a vote on the second reading. And then the committee stage in the House of Lords is a little bit different because anybody, any member of the House of Lords, can sit on the committee to review that. Uh, but the same thing happens, essentially. They go through bit by bit and make suggestions and amendments. And then the revised bill comes back to the House of Lords and then they do a third reading vote. Now, if the House of Lords has amended the bill which has been presented to them by the House of Commons, it then goes back to the House of Commons. But this time they simply vote on whether they want to accept the amendments or not. There may be a series of votes depending on how they batch the amendments up. And actually each amendment when it's going through the third reading can also, because uh, at any point MPs or peers can table amendments to the bill as well. So at any at second reading, report stage, committee stage or third reading, there can be a series of votes on particular parts of the bill before you get to the final vote on the bill itself. So you can see there's a number of stages it has to go through. So, as I say, if the bill is amended, it then goes back to the Commons, and the Commons then votes on whether to accept the amendments or not, or put any new ones in. And if they decide to amend the bill which has been presented to them by the House of Lords, it then goes back to the House of Lords. And that process is called ping-pong, because <laughs> it ping-pongs between the two houses. And if you've ever been to the Houses of Parliament, what it is, basically, you've got the House of Lords at one end and the House of Commons at, another, at the other end, and there's a long corridor going through a couple of lobbies. And they actually have a very formal procession with a little clerk, maybe not so little clerk, walking along with, it, with the bill, walking from one house to the other to, in order to present it to the other house. So it's all quite sort of archaic. It's all lovely Norman lawmaking practice, which hasn't evolved very much since about 1700. So that, it basically bounces backwards and forwards. Now, if you want a current example of that, you only need to look at any of the Brexit legislation. So you will see, at the, and there's also at the moment something called the Mental Capacity Act, or Mental Capacity Bill, which is going through. And it's the same process, irrespective of whatever bill it is. And you get a wide variety of really, really bizarre bills. So back in 2012, I had a meeting about same-sex marriage with the then minister uh, who was pushing, one of the ministers pushing it through, talking about spousal veto, and then that was the same-sex marriage bill, and when she said, she said, no, no, we're not going to amend the bill going through, uh, but there are other opportunities, we might be able to tag it onto something else, and I then said, well, I look forward to the Humber Bridge and Equalities bill going through, then <laughs> completely unaware that there was actually a Humber Bridge bill going through at the time. And it's only when the two houses agree on a particular piece of legislation that it then gets sent to Buckingham Palace for royal assent. And then assuming the Queen agrees, which if she didn't agree, it would cause a constitutional crisis beyond which we haven't seen since 17-something or other. Queen Anne was the last monarch to refuse assent. It then goes back to Parliament and the assent of the monarch is then read out and it becomes law. And then it needs to be 
enacted or enabled. So not all law necessarily comes into effect. We've seen that most clearly uh, with the um, press regulation stuff. The government recently has refused to enable what's called Section 40 of the Crown Courts Act, which is the sticks as well as carrots for the press to behave. There's an even better example, which is the Easter Act of 1928. This is where my constitutional geekery comes really to the fore. It is the law of the land that Easter Sunday is the, the Sunday following the second Saturday in April. That's law. I don't see it reflected in any of our calendars because Parliament and government did not enable the Easter Act of 1928. So just because it is law, it still needs to be enabled. So that's the process, which then means there's any number of opportunities for debates in, in both chambers of the Houses of Parliament, any number of votes, any MP can table whichever amendments they want, however, which amendments are selected for debate and for votes is dependent on the Speaker. At the moment, our Speaker is John Burko, who has a good reputation for LGBT rights. The feeling is that John will be uh, stepping down as Speaker some point next year. That could be problematic for any gender recognition bill for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because it's unlikely any gender recognition bill will be published before September next year anyway, because it's going to take a long time for government to analyse the almost 100,000 responses they had to the recent, recent consultation. So it's unlikely they will publish any response to that before the summer, simply because of the amount of time it will take. And secondly, because any new speaker, all the talk in the House is currently, it's likely to be Harriet Harman, and Harriet is not necessarily quite so friendly towards trans people as John Burko is. So Harriet may select a different set of amendments than John would have done. So we may have a battle on our hands in the Commons at least. When it comes to the Lords, the Lords has a very good right on a uh, good record on human rights legislation. Back in 2012, there was a huge amount of discussion as to whether the Lords were going to vote down same-sex marriage. That was never going to be the case. Um, my estimate was that there was going to be a majority of 100 to 150 in the House of Lords. Uh, I think the closest vote was about 122, majority of 122. So the House, House of Lords is very good on human rights. House of Commons, not quite so much. The issue within the House of Commons is that people do vote on party lines. And most votes are what's called whips, which means that you've got a bunch of the image is that you've got a bunch of MPs with whips chasing people, chasing other MPs into the right lobby. Uh, the Gender Recognition Bill, if it comes forward, even though it's going to be a government bill, is likely to be a conscience bill, which then means that parties will not whip their MPs to vote a particular way. That's my assumption. The government may decide not to do that, but legislation like that tends to go that MPs can vote on their conscience. Um, so the Tories are going to be split down the middle on this, as they always are. Uh, Labour is fairly solidly on side at the moment, although there are a few noises off. I've spoken to all of our Lib Dem MPs, uh, and all of them are on side, although a couple may sort of grumble a little bit. Um, SNP are all on side. So once you add to the arithmetic, actually, we have a majority as it currently stands in the House of Commons as well. 
So that's good news if the government pushes through the bill. Now, obviously, Brexit means will we have a government to push through the bill? That's not that's far from certain. So there's a question about whether the government will survive even up to February at the moment. All sorts of questions about what happens if they can't get the budget through, what happens if they can't get the agreements on Brexit through, and all that kind of stuff. It's very, very turbulent times. Um, I mean, I just come from Parliament uh, over lunch, and the conversation really was, you know, we just don't know, we can't plan anything. And as a prospective parliamentary candidate, so I'm going to fight chip them again, it is incredibly difficult to plan anything. So we just have to kind of keep going, which is exhausting. So that's an idea of the timetable and what's the stake, and it gives you a little bit of the picture around it. Give me, I'll give you a little bit of insight into how to talk to MPs, gained by talking to MPs for the last seven years and also standing to be one last year. Standing to be one, you get, I mean, I was one of our target candidates, which then meant that people treated me seriously. I wasn't one of these people who was only going to get 4% of the vote, so why bother contacting them? I was somebody who could potentially win the seat. So there was a need to contact me. And it meant that at various points during the general election campaign, I was receiving 30 or more emails an hour. Now, I have no staff, so you can imagine I would get up at six in the morning, be out on the campaign trail for about eight, you know, eight o'clock, get back home at ten o'clock at night, and then have hundreds of emails to try and plow through. So what you look for is short emails which get to the point, personal emails which tell you a story, and emails which tells you why this is important. 30 emails an hour gives you about enough time to read an email and reply to it when the next one comes in. So if that was your full-time job, you could just about stay on top of it. MPs, but mailboxes, are the same. They are getting that volume of emails on a regular basis. So the first key point, if you are going to talk to your MP or write your MP, and I urge you to do so, is to make it personal make it short and punchy, and make it relevant. Why should your MP be interested in this? Okay? Let me tell you, if you've got something which you need to scroll through, after you've clicked the scroll button a third time, your eyes glaze over. You have, don't have the capacity to take it in. So you need to try and keep it as straightforward as possible. You need to make it stand out in some way. Okay? Um, the other option of engaging with your MP is going to talk to them at surgeries. Every MP should hold very regular surgeries around the constituency. Some may require you to book first, others will just allow you to turn up. Do go and talk to them. They're human beings. They're not on pedestals. They're not as they come across on the press or the media normally. Uh, some are, sadly, but most aren't. So go and talk to them. Explain. You then have probably 10 minutes with them to, to give your own story in a lot more detail about why it's important. Make it your story. Why is gender recognition important to you? What would you gain from it? Why should they vote for it? Okay? The other thing is you can actually go and ask to talk to your MP in the House of Parliament. MP staff are quite protective of that, but they can do it. But I will leave you with one uh, story. The very first MP I went to talk to like that was Simon Hughes, who's no, no longer an MP. Um, it, it turned out to be the day where Rupert Murdoch was giving evidence in Parliament, 
as was the chief of the Metropolitan Police, Ken McDonald. So it was going to be a heavy day in Parliament. So when I knew that, I emailed the researcher, the person who was managing their diary, and said, if, if Simon needs to rearrange, I understand it's going to be a busy day, if Simon needs to rearrange, let me know. We'll sort out another day. No, 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 it's absolutely fine, absolutely fine. So I rock up, Simon is late, and the researcher then sits and sits, so I then say, well, you're he must have a really busy day. Yes, yes, he does, but he's cancelled every other meeting other than yours. I said, well, I'm you know, quite happy to rearrange. You know, I said that, and he said, yes, I know. You were the only one who offered to rearrange. Everyone else emailed said, I hope you're not going to rearrange. This is important. Not important enough. The one who he kept was the one who said, this is important. So I know you're busy, so I'm happy to rearrange. Okay? MPs have huge pressures on them. They have staff protecting them. Uh, you need to be able to try and cut through in a way, but show them a level of respect for what they do and the pressures that are on them. And finally, don't forget the laws. You can write to laws. They're under no obligation to meet you, but a lot will. Okay? So, and you can come and talk to me in Parliament as well, because I've got a pass. That's all good fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan. I'm sure, sure we all learned a lot from that. Oh, yes, let's go to that. Thank you again. I think that really highlighted um, just how opaque, opaque the system can be, um, but also gave us all some really useful tips on how to actually get through to our NPD. Um, so next up, uh, we have Nimrath. You're going to stand to your seat because I'm nervous. So. And I can move and it helps with me feeling nervous. Um, so, yeah, my name's Nim. Uh, I have a very short slideshow. Uh, just slides like this. Um, so, GI asked me to talk today and it took me until kind of this morning to work out what to say. Uh, and it took quite a lot of work and I realised that the reason I was struggling is that I do a lot of work in campaigning, I train campaigners and activists, I'm always in these kinds of spaces, but talking about trans campaigning to me feels like talking about me. And as a trainer, I like to stand at the front of them because it stops me having to talk about me and I get to make you all talk about you. Uh, and so uh, the first thing I want to say is that for me, trans campaigning is survival and survival is campaigning. I don't know how to separate those two things from each other. And I can't, I can't separate me from the work, and I can't separate my body from the work. And fundamentally, that's because I can't separate my humanity from the work. Because whether we're talking about toilets, whether we're talking about the Houses of Parliament, whether we're talking about birth certificates, what we're talking about is my humanity. And I don't know how to separate those things out. And that's because the threat to my body and my humanity is everywhere. It is walking down the street and the potential for violence. It is in toilets. It is barriers, both social and literal, to healthcare whether it's to do with me being trans or not to do with me being trans. It's policies that affect me and my friends like sex work criminalisation. It's from friends and from family. It's from intimate relationships and it's at borders, especially as a trans person of colour. Twice this year I've had random crop searches, specific crop searches at borders. And while transitioning through borders is a space of policing, there are no borders to the policing of my body. And that happens wherever I go. And one of the most painful things to acknowledge when I was thinking about that is that that external policing is so powerful that sometimes the biggest threat of violence to me is me. And trans suicide is murder in a world that wants us dead. 
And that fundamentally is why I cannot separate out myself from my campaigning. The weird thing is, it's our humanity that is at stake, but it's also our humanity that wins us rights and occasionally justice. And that's why I create spaces, or I hope and I try to create spaces where trans people can be heard within movement space. So one of the, one of the main projects that I work on is called Campaign Bootcamp. It's a training space for activists and campaigners. And one of the things I work really hard on there is trying to make it a trans-inclusive space, but a space that trans people actually get access to. And that's twofold. The reason for that's twofold, and one is because I want to take down the doors and I want trans people to be sealed up in that space. But the other is that the, the uh, methodology of that space is that we have lots of different types of people in space together who learn about each other and that our movements actually start to understand and cross learn from each other. But with that, there's a, there's a cost. Because what that means is that for people who are there because of their humanity, it's their humanity they're sharing, not their ideas. And I hope that my presence in power in the room is enough to support people when I'm doing that, but I also know that comes at a risk. And that comes at a risk because of everything I just said. Uh, <laughs> um, but also, I think the reason that people do come to that space is that for trans people, if we're not resisting, we're internalising. And I resist because if not, I am internalising. And that, to me, is part of my survival. Um, that said, we're a small population, and we rarely have access to influential spaces. Although I'm glad that we do have some, and we have people inside. So we need, there are lots of things that we need around us. This, this isn't just trans people's fight, right? We need people to help take doors off for us. We need people to invite us in and center our voices. And we need people to recognize our contributions. And that last point to me is particularly important. Because I see my trans friends and family across movements with that arms hold up, doing the work, not least in the feminist movement, with that work being available on us. And so, if we aren't at the table, we're on the menu. Right? <laughs> and that's why it's important that everybody is putting their doors down and centering our voices. Uh, it's why um, one of the things that I helped set up was the edge fund that Cara mentioned, not just in my introduction, but also in your job earlier, um, which just funded Cara's project on Open Labs, which you should check out. It's very cool. Um, but the, I'm not going to go into the nuts and bolts of it, but it's basically a kind of anti-capitalist funder, <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds. We basically get people to give us money, and then we let people who need the money make the decisions about who takes the money. Um, and something that was really important to me when we did that was that what happened initially was everybody got to say uh, who got money regardless of what the project was. And so what we tried to do was create a system where oppressed peoples got to choose and decide on funds that affected oppressed peoples before everybody else got a say on them. Uh, and something that I actually was a really powerful testament to the model this morning was hearing Cara talk about the experience of being at the funding day when 14 other groups who were there for funding were there together and voted how to distribute the funds amongst themselves. And that by being in that space, you said that it reminded you not the whole world is shitty and transphobic. Uh, <laughs> because other people actually voted to give you the money you needed. Um, so coming back to um, our understanding of campaigning, we often think of campaigning as the charge moment of breaking down the door to get to the table, if we're thinking about getting to the table. We think of a campaign as a thing, one action that we do. And it can be that. But getting to the table isn't only about the doors. It's about the conditions that get us there. It's about if and how we're invited. It's about if and how we're welcome. And also if we compete. And we all need to create the social conditions for that to all be possible. 
So campaigning isn't just a thing that we pick up and that people share because they're virtue signaling and they're on board. It's the things that we're doing all the time that create the conditions for things like the GRA amendments to go through. So last month, uh, I ran a campaign around the GRA um, consultation where, uh, in literal terms, this is me bathing with my humanity. I basically was my charmingest self on a camera to reach lots of people so that they could see I was a human and fit in a consultation that doesn't actually even matter that much to me in practice. I'm probably not going to get a gender recognition certificate. Uh, I've changed my gender in the ways I need and want to change my gender in life. Uh, but it matters to me because of the social conditions in which that campaign exists. It matters because of the social and political context. I feel like the GRA is about legal jurisdiction within the UK right now, well not in the UK, in England and Wales right now, but actually the, the context in which it exists is one, is one that doesn't know um, those juris- the, the borders of those jurisdictions. It's about a social movement uh, against transhuman humanities and it's one that we're seeing is galvanising not just through Trump but also across borders because transphobia doesn't know borders. Geographical ones, national ones, all the ones of my body. Uh, so recently, last week, there was news of a Me Too panel in New Zealand and a similar wave of um, anti-trans activism that is currently mobilising in the UK uh, shut down that panel because there was a trans speaker on it. And if, if you're paying attention, this is happening. Uh, it's it's mobilising and it's building everywhere. So what we tried to do with our campaign around the GRA was address the social conditions. Part of what, what is happening um, is people are, there are genuine transphobic people at the heart of this, I think a very small group of them, and they're posing lots of questions, and they're posing lots of questions that make sense to lots of people, because they play on a fear that exists, the fear of sexual violence, the fear of <laughs> everything that you know. And as trans people, when our humanity is being bothered with, what we want to say is this is transphobic, I don't want to hear this, and that's like completely reasonable, but what the debate needs to be saying is the question, the answers you're posing to the questions you're posing are irrelevant here and they're also false. And in the narrative around the GRA from the people running very good GRA campaigns, we didn't see that. What we saw was this is transphobic, shut it down. And I think that's an important point. So just to be clear, I'm not saying that that shouldn't be being said, but actually it doesn't recognise who, who can and needs to be shifted here and why a very small group of people are having a very influential voice in this moment in time. And because of that, trans people shouldn't be doing all the work. That's the long and short of it. We need people at all levels. We need advocates, allies, accomplices at all levels doing that work with and for us. Because we need to recognise that transphobia navigates the borders of all of your bodies and my bodies too. And to work with us to, to abolish transphobia everywhere, we need all of that. We need empowerment, we need challenging the current system, and we need creating alternative spaces. Um, so to me, trans campaigning is not just a literal campaign which got over 80,000 views and 7,000 extra consultations. Uh, <laughs> but it needs the social conditions. Um, because, because, as Helen just explained, can explain far better than me. The next, I actually think we've won the actual literal filling in of the consultation. We've drowned our voices significantly. That bit, I'm confident to say, is down. But the next piece is proposed amendments. It's going through the houses. Um, it's getting all that on board, and what that needs is a political and social context in which MPs, ministers, and people around that are actually willing to say that they're taking a stand for this. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, 
thought we could just take a second to reflect on the, on the poignancy of that there are no borders to the policing of my body. I thought that was such a beautiful and really sad line, but thank you for sharing everything you shared with us and for highlighting how poorly run the Gender Intelligence GRA campaign was. <laughs> okay, so next up we have Charlie Craddocks. Guys, um, I'm not going to say anything as articulate as that lovely quote because I'm up at 5 a.m. today, so I'm exhausted. But um, I've been asked to talk to you about my campaign today, which I can do because I've been talking about that for the last five years. So I have like a, a nice kind of script in my head, so I'm going to just sleep and talk but with my eyes open. No, I'm joking. So basically, um, it's actually really nice to be talking about this today because it's the birthday of my campaign next week. So it's been five years since I set out nail transphobia. So just to explain nail transphobia for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically a campaign I run where I, like um, Cara said, I travel around the UK with a pop-up nail salon and I'm brought in usually by like museums and galleries and festivals and universities and colleges and just kind of like public spaces. I'll explain why in a minute. But um, I offer the public free manicures for the chance to sit down and have a chat with a trans person. So while I'm doing their nails, they can kind of ask me whatever they want, even if it's the wrong question, because I can teach them the wrong question in a nice way. But um, yeah, and it's just a chance for people to sit down and have a chat with a trans person and for me to try and humanise the issue for them. It's not about normalising things, but humanising things. I think that's kind of what we've all touched on is about making things personal. Everyone said something about making things personal, and I think that's what I try and do with my activism. So I call what I do fabulous activism, but it's also very just like personal activism. It's kind of like, because often existing is activism when you're a trans person. So like it's about showing people that kind of humanity. So basically, um, I don't know where to start. So I started a campaign, like I said, five years ago. Um, I set up as my final project at university. So I was studying branding and London College of Fashion. And I wanted to kind of show how maybe activism could be rebranded a bit. It was just like a silly coursework project. It was never going to be like a real thing. It was just literally just for written coursework to get a grade. And then I got offered, I was working at the VA and the events team, just doing, I was a little bit, just like on all events. And my boss was like, oh, you can make it like a real thing if you want, if you're a fine project, get you a good grade. And I was like, yeah, I want to get a first. So I was like, okay, let's do it. Didn't get a first, got a 2 1 through, even though I did an event at the VA, my product. Anyway, basically, Rude, but um, uh, so I uh, yeah, I put an event at the VA and then I didn't have a name for it, it was literally just a coursework project of like I just want to do nails and I have chats with people because basically, just to give a bit of context, the reason I came with it, I came up with this idea because I had just come out as trans and I had just been. It was the first time I had been attacked for being trans. Like I was attacked um, on a way home from a night out. It was like really, it was actually the day I did my name change, it was really sad. Like, but um. Uh, yeah, I was attacked at a bus stop and like it was a really backpack bus stop and like no one got involved or said anything or even like the thing that hurt me most because no respect was fight my battles but I do feel like if people say like at the start of something like that I'll just leave it out like people often will leave it out because they realize how stupid they look but it was more that after I'd been attacked no one even said are you okay like no one even looked at me and I was just like wow okay that's you see me as like nothing so um, I kind of was like we need allies because I, I know how to not have an ally, so I was like, we really need to like work on this. And I feel like back then, 2013-ish, no one was, there wasn't much like conversation about trans stuff in the media like how it is now, so I was like really annoyed at that and really annoyed at how like people didn't understand 
like and didn't know about how I I was constantly being attacked. So I have a council stick, I was in like a road, so like it was just my everyday life having bricks thrown at me, eggs, glass bottles, like it was just my everyday life. I was just really angry that people didn't know that this is how it was for trans people now because of the kind of increased like representation of trans people and the, and the, the increased conversation and narrative. People understand that now that that's our lived experience. But back then I was just really annoying me how people didn't. So I was like, I want to talk about this and people need to bloody know how hard it is and like people need to stop and people we need allies, like I said, so I was like basically having these conversations with my family and friends like coming out and like explaining that like, I'm from an Irish Catholic working class family. Most I'm from like I said Labrosa often most of my friends uh, are from cultures that don't necessarily accept LGBT people like um so I was just having these conversations and helping people who maybe were from communities like my own family or my friends whatever understand who I was and my humanity and like kind of almost like winning them over just by not even doing anything just by talking because literally I wasn't faking anything I was literally just explaining and being myself and they would just be like oh well, like I get it it's like really normal there's not much to understand and I think that's the, the kind of the crux of the issues that it's really there's really not much to understand with trans stuff like I don't so that's kind of what I do it's all about that because I I recognize that it'd be kind of maybe effective to have these conversations with people who weren't my family and friends and I like, just travel around having conversations so I started doing that um and yeah, I was like I said, it's often, especially at the start, it was a chance for people to ask the wrong questions because often people will ask the wrong questions. Like people sit down with me to have their nails done, they will not even ask me my name, and they will say, "Have you had the surgery yet?" Like literally, like we've all had that, I'm sure. But like, it's just like it's, but it's good because it's in that moment that I can be like, "Oh, hey, so you don't ask that," like, and then they know, and like, and then I'll explain why. And but I've like I said it in like a way that they're not gonna. I could shout. I have every right to shout them and be like, "Get out of my salon," whatever. But if I answer it like that, which does take some kind of emotionally taxing, maybe like I wouldn't do that in my like if I was on achievement, someone did that, I would not gonna say what I do. But um, but yeah, I, I do mean but in the when I'm have my activist hat on and I'm when I'm saying this is what I'm doing, I will educate you, then I do, and I think we can get more out of people when we kind of come in that way. Um so yeah, I will like they can ask me whatever they want and it's just a chance for me to try and um, like I said, humanise the issue rather than normalise it. And just like even if we're not talking about trans stuff, like we can just have a chat and it's about sitting down and having a chat with someone from a community that you've not actually probably met before, because most people haven't met a trans person. I hadn't met a trans person, so I transitioned. So like, you know, like for like middle England, like when I'm traveling around, so I don't know, like seven, like, I didn't even know, like, I don't want to offend anyone, so I don't want to say a city that's like basic, but yeah. <laughs> I just, when I come to Leicester to see Andy, yeah, I, I saw my mate Andy, and we're friends now, fire man, straight man, so it's like amazing, like, getting to sit down with someone like that, who's probably never met, well, Andy knows lots of trans girls, but most, uh, like, that's like, really dodgy, I feel like, he's a really good ally, he's actually the loveliest man, but I meant like, for someone who probably most people who interact with my campaign haven't met a trans person because most people haven't and it's it's a really good way of them because they feel like they have all this stuff in their head they just don't understand they feel like they're walking on eggshells and when they sit down with me I'm just like babe like, so literally and I was like just ask like I just kind of explain it to them in a way that I think people need that human conversation sometimes to understand it like they can read about it but it's when you have a chat with someone from that community that you really understand it and it's about making it personal like Helen said that's kind of the what I do is all about making it personal and like when they ask me questions I can tell them about when I was attacked or I can tell them about my childhood and being four and knowing or I can tell them about whatever like and it's just it, that personal element is what transforms people from into allies because people almost need like empathy I guess to be an ally like you can be sympathetic towards the cause but to be an active ally you have 
have to like be emotionally invested, I think, and unless you're affected by an issue personally yourself, you're probably not gonna take it upon yourself to be an active, like, oh, let me like sign the GRA, like, and it's just it's a long form, like, you're probably not gonna do it unless you really care. So you need to win people over. So what I do is really about changing hearts and minds, and um, yeah, hopefully people leave my salon with more than just a man for the with a new perspective and as an ally. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't know what else to say, but have I said enough? Should I keep talking? I'm really bad. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Great points, very well made, thank you. Um, I think we all know that trans people have been dehumanised a lot in the media and just in the popular imaginings of us, um, but I think what Charlie is saying is that speaking honestly about our experiences and our lives shows our humanity and it, it helps us actually change the narrative because it's a broken narrative to talk about trans people and it doesn't work. This doesn't work for us, it's a narrative for a different type of person. You've been listening to the Transforming Spaces podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add, we'd be really interested to hear your views. Um, so do please tweet us at... At Gender Intel. <laughs>